0: Taking the tide, I think it'll be a close game, a really close game, an all-time thriller, but I think Alabama will be able to control the line of scrimmage better than the Georgia Bulldogs. I know it's crazy, and you're going to say I'm seeing it through crimson-colored glasses, but if you listen here on Always College Football, I'm going to break it down. I'm going to break down that game start to finish and why I think Alabama has a bit of an edge, more so than they've had in recent years, Against the Georgia Bulldogs. There is an area of Georgia's defense that I think Alabama could take advantage of, and I will explain here as we break down the conference championships on a Thursday edition of Always College Football. Welcome in. I'm Greg McElroy. We appreciate you being here from wherever it is you're coming to us from. Whether that's on the ESPN YouTube page, please hit that thumbs up button. Subscribe to the ESPN College Football page. That'd be awesome as well. If you're here with us via the podcast, please subscribe to the podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a rating. If you could, you guys have been coming from all over the world to listen to the podcast. Leave us a rating. And if you could, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That'd be awesome as well. It means a lot to us. We really appreciate the kind words that you've shared with us here over the last year and a half since we've been doing our work here at ACF. Mark Kubiak's alongside. Jack Foster's alongside. Jack Schrail's alongside. Jake Garcia's alongside. We appreciate you being here. We're going to break down the conference championship games like no one else. We're going to break it down with stats. We're going to break it down with matchups. We're going to hit both offense and defense of every team involved. We're going to talk about some of the top players. We're going to talk about some of the important stats and tendencies that might ultimately decide the outcomes of some of these games. And before we get into the weeds with the breakdowns, okay, I'm going to tell you the top eight teams quickly. There are eight teams that are still alive for the college football playoff. Eight. Eight. You're going to say, "How? how is that possible? I'll explain here in a second. Here's the scenarios that you need if you are a fan of the sport, if you are a fan of a specific team. Here's what you need to happen, I think, to make it to the college football playoff. Remember, I don't decide who's in the college football playoff. That's the committee's job. But here's what I think the committee will do. Georgia, you win and you're in. You're number one. Fair enough. I don't think that's a whole... I don't think it's a very difficult thing to consume. Number two, Michigan win and you're in. Easy enough. Number three, Washington, win and you're in. Easy enough. Number four, Florida State, win and you're in. Easy enough. Number five, that's Oregon, win and you're in. You'll slide up to either three or four. Washington will move out and you'll be in a really good spot. Number six, Ohio State, here's what you need to happen. A little bit more complex, for you to find your way in the playoff, but I think there is a possibility. If you're an Ohio State fan, here's what you want. Yes, you need to be rooting for Michigan. Yes, that hurts, but it's true. You need Michigan to win. They lock up one spot. You need Georgia to win. They lock up two spots. You need Washington to win. They lock up three spots, okay? And then you need Oklahoma State to beat Texas, which would give Texas two losses. Oregon then Because Washington beat them, they will have two losses. And then you need Louisville to beat Florida State. That would give them one loss. You would probably have the head-to-head as far as resume is concerned. And then Alabama, because Georgia was victorious, would have two losses as well. So you'd be measured against a one-loss Florida State team, in which case I think they would give the Ohio State Buckeyes the edge at 11-1. to So the Buckeyes are alive. Those are the things that need to happen. For the Texas Longhorns, you need one upset, one You, of course, need to handle your business against Oklahoma State. Then you need one upset, meaning you need Alabama to beat Georgia or you need Louisville to beat Florida State. One of the two can happen. If one of the two does happen, you will make it to the college football playoff. And then Alabama, you need to beat Georgia, and then you need one upset. So you need Oklahoma State to beat Texas or you need Louisville to beat to beat Florida State and then of course you have to beat Georgia in which case you would slide up Florida State would slide out and Georgia would slide out because you beat them head-to-head so you'd probably be in the four spot pretty simple Bama needs one upset and beat Georgia Texas needs just one upset Ohio State needs three upsets to happen for them to get in and then the rest of the teams control their own destiny with a victory fair enough All right, let's break it down, some of the incredible matchups that we have here in Conference Championship Weekend. Let's hit it from every possible angle with the most comprehensive breakdown you'll find anywhere on the college football podcast platforms. Let's get started with the Pac-12 title game. This weekend preview is brought to you by Dr. Pepper. It's not college football season without the delicious taste of an ice cold Dr. Pepper, the one fans deserve. Let's get things kicked off Friday night. 8 o'clock Eastern time on ABC, the Oregon Ducks are nearly a 10-point favorite over the third-ranked Washington Huskies at the Pac-12 title game. Second time these teams have met, obviously, back on October 14th, Washington won the game 36-33, six lead changes in the game. Oregon missing the game-tying field goal there at the end that would have sent the game to overtime as time expired. Remember, Oregon went 0-3 for on fourth downs in the game, two of which – we're inside the Washington 10, and the final one was in the field. That would have put the game on ice. Washington is looking to become the first Pac-12 team to go undefeated in a regular season since 2010. That was the Oregon Ducks. Good news for Washington, even though they're a heavy underdog in this game. Regular season winners are 7-1 in rematch conference championship games. The lone loss was 2014 Oregon that defeated Arizona for the Pac-12 title and ultimately got to the college football playoff. Now, between Washington and Oregon, the Huskies have more quality wins, but the Ducks have been far more dominant. Oregon's averaging about a 30-point margin per game average, which is the best in college football, and Washington has seven single-digit wins. That's also the most in college football, but we will give credit to Washington on this. They've won four games against teams in the power five that are eight and four or better. That's the most in college football. So they've beaten some good teams. I view a quality win as an eight-win power five team. That's a quality win to me. Oregon has four of those. That's the most in the country. I bet you can't guess who they're tied with at the top. might get to that team here in just a little bit. And they might be playing in the Big 12 title game. And it might not be Texas. All right, We'll talk about it. Let's start with Oregon's offense against Washington's defense. Oregon's offense led by Bo Nix. A uh, lot of what he does is short, uh, averaging about six and a half air yards per attempt. That's 121st out of 126 qualified quarterbacks. And 33% of Bo Nix's passes have been thrown at or behind the line of scrimmage. That's the 11th highest rate in the FBS. So he gets the ball out quick. Their offense designed to create run after catch, and we'll talk about that here in just a second. But get the ball out quick, be decisive. And I thought last week, though, against Oregon State, he did the best job all season, kind of running, throwing the ball downfield, making some contested catch situations look pretty easy. I thought there was a really, really good game for Bo Nix, probably his best of the year. I still think, and I know this is not a popular opinion, I think the best player on the Oregon Ducks is Bucky Irving. He leads the team with over a 1,000 yards, about six and a half a carry. But you look at how many times he makes guys miss. It's absurd. The guy, If he's in the open field, you are not tackling him. He is so shifty, he's so quick, and he is so explosive. He's got to be one of the most difficult tackles in the open field in the sport. Their wide receivers are excellent with Troy Franklin and Tez Johnson. Uh, Franklin's actually third in the FBS. It didn't feel like that, by the way. I was surprised when I saw this. He's third in the FBS with 1,300 receiving yards, 1,349 to be exact. He's actually ahead of Rome Adunze on the other side for Washington, who comes in at 1,326. Tez Johnson, though, is really good, too, as their number two guy. Really the slot guy can create a lot of issues, and he does a great job in contested catch situations. Said already, 64% of the team's receiving yards have come after the catch. That's among the highest rates in the FBS. So get the ball out quick. Those guys create great separation. Bo Nix is really accurate on the underneath. Guys don't have to slow their momentum, and they make guys miss after the catch. So they're really good when it comes to that. The one area where Oregon is not crazy elite, and I'm trying to look like down the numbers, right? There's not a lot of things that you could say negatively about Oregon's offense. They are awesome. But when they are close to the end zone, Okay, when they are in a goal to go situation, when they are in a red zone situation, they're not quite as good, not quite as good. All right. They are 25 touchdowns on 31 goal to go drives. So that's an 81 percent conversion rate. That is 50th in the FBS. And part of that is the fact that they are one for four on fourth downs in a goal to go situation. Of course, two of those three misses came against the Washington Huskies. Washington's defense, a lot of this is going to be kind of a moot point. I mean, they got to be able to get after the quarterback. I think Braylon Trice, the last couple weeks, has been playing maybe his best football of the season, but they have not been a team that's been great at affecting the opposing passer this year. Just 19 sacks, that's 110th. And when you look at the run game, they're not great in being able to create loss yardage plays. They're not going to get you off schedule. Okay, they are basically 128th. If you look at the numbers, they're 128th in havoc rate against the run. So it's not great along the front, but I do think they're better than the numbers would indicate. I don't know why that is, but the numbers just don't seem that seem like they're there. But when you watch them, it's they do a pretty good job. I mean, Bo Nix and the offensive line do an amazing job They get the ball out. Ken Washington create some issues with their rush. Probably not knowing the matchup in the game. So it means that it's really going to fall on their secondary Jabbar Muhammad has been pretty good. He's their best corner. He's given up 27 completions this year and about 45% completion rate. And on the other side is Elijah Jackson. He's given up 24 completions on 47 attempts. So a little over 50%. That's not great, by the way, when you think about that. And Dominic Hampton, he's allowed a lot of big plays too at safety. So I think they're going to probably struggle in the back end with these wide receivers. The big thing is they have to win on third down. They have to win on third down, and they haven't been great on third down this year. They're 95th with a 41% opponent third down conversion rate. And big reason why is opponents have been getting to third and manageables. I mean, teams average about six and a half yards to go on third down, which is 124th. So they have to be good on first and second down to get Oregon behind the sticks. And if they can, maybe they have a chance. But Oregon is extremely efficient. So is Washington's offense, though. Start with them. They throw it a lot, okay? They're basically 3-1 to one as far as their yards through the air, yards on the ground. That's massive. Uh, they create a ton of explosive plays. They have 78 plays that have gone for 20-plus yards. It's the fifth most in the country. Their offensive line is excellent, and Pennix does not get under pressure very often. Much like Oregon, they keep their quarterback upright, but when Pennix starts to feel the heat, his numbers drop down considerably. When the pocket's clean, 73%. When it's not clean and he's under pressure, 43%. That's the completion rate. When he's under pressure, 7.8 yards per attempt. When the pocket's clean, 9.6. That's nearly a two-yard jump when the protection is sound. So teams have started to kind of heat him up a little bit more the last couple weeks, so he's been facing more pressure the last couple weeks. Teams have opted to blitz, and if you look at how Oregon has defended this year, they're very aggressive. They're going to get after you. I would imagine Tosh Lupo is going to call a lot of heat against Michael Penix. I would imagine that's exactly the approach that they'll have. Rome Dunze is amazing. So is Jalen Polk. They're the one-two punch at wide receiver. But don't forget about Jalen McMillan, who caught five passes – Last week, that was his first catch. It's a Michigan State game back on September 16th. So he's now back in the fold, but how effective can he be? That's the question that I have, at least at the moment. But This is a big play offense that's going to generate a lot of opportunities down the field to an outstanding wide receiver core. The run game's led by Dylan Johnson. He's their leading rusher. He's picked up his production and workload the last couple of weeks, but a lot of it's going to be on like pin and pull schemes where they're out on the outside, out on the perimeter, and when they get the offensive lineman pulling, they have some success. They're pretty good running the football. Now you're going to look at the numbers against SC, and maybe that elevated things a bit for Dylan Johnson. I mean, after all, he ran for 250 in that game or so. He's got 961 on the year. So 250 in one game, about 700 in the other 11. So how much of that was USC? How much of that was Washington? We'll find out. But Oregon's defense is really good. They can get after the quarterback. They blitz at a really high rate, and they have some really good players along the front, like Jordan Burch, Brandon Dorless, and their defense is really good against deep balls. Except for when they played against Washington the last time around. Washington on throws that traveled 20 yards downfield. Washington was four of six with two touchdowns against zero interceptions. Against everybody else, they are 13 for 55. That's 24% completion rate, one touchdown against three interceptions. Now, Oregon runs a lot of man coverage. That's what they do. They run a lot of man coverage. It's going to be very difficult for them to match up in one-on-one situations with this outstanding wide receiver core. Maybe they go a little bit more zone. Maybe they pressure to try to shrink the amount of time that Michael Penix has to observe the field. A couple trends in this one. Oregon is a a nine-and-a-half-point favorite at the moment against Washington, despite losing the first meeting. It's the first time since 2020 that a team has been a nine-point favorite against the same season rematch after losing the first meeting. That year, it was Clemson who covered the 11-point margin over Notre Dame in the ACC championship game, Oregon is nine and two against the spread as a favorite 2023 and Oregon has had three straight games against teams with winning records that went under the total. I like Oregon to win the game. I think Oregon will win the game. I think it's going to be close, though. Washington, everyone seems to think they've, they've been left for dead. Kalen DeBoer knows how to get it done. He knows how to get his team ready to play. I think they're better on defense today than they were when they played Oregon a few weeks ago. I think Oregon, though, has been a well-oiled machine and is peaking at the right time with their level of play so they get it done in the Pac-12 title game, but I expect it to be a thriller there on Friday night. Let's go to game number two in the Power Five. This game will be Saturday, noon Eastern time on ABC, the Oklahoma State Cowboys and the Texas Longhorns. About 14 or so, 15 or so, depending on where you look, that's the line as of right now. And Just a reminder here, no team has made the playoff when ranked outside the top six in the penultimate rankings. Texas is in at number seven. So if they're going to make it, it'd be the first time ever. They're going to need a little help, I think, but it is certainly possible that they have to win, obviously, against the Oklahoma State Cowboys. Six of the last eight Big 12 championship games have been decided by a touchdown or less. That's the most for any Power Five Conference championship game over the last 15 seasons. Of course, there was a six-year gap there for the Big 12, where they did not have a conference championship game when they went down to 10 members there after the 20-whatever season it was. You know. (laughs) Now, the matchup between Oklahoma State and Texas has been really interesting. Seven of the last eight games in this matchup have been decided by one score. Each of the last three have featured double-digit comeback wins, which is amazing. Oklahoma State trailed by 14 and 21 and 22. Both games were won by the Pokes and Texas trailed by 11 when they beat Oklahoma State in 2020. Steve Sarkeesian, people are making the big deal out of the Big 12 Coach of the Year. I don't think Sark cares. I think Mike Gundy is a deserving winner, I might add. I don't think there's been a better coaching job uh, in his career than what he's done this year. They've had a lot of close games. They're really good in close games. That usually leads to the coach being successful. Now, Steve Sarkeesian, I think, has been amazing. With the way he's put this roster together. It feels like they've been building for this moment. They have embraced the expectations. This is their opportunity to knock the door down and announce to the college football world that they are officially back. I know some people think they're back already. I don't think Sark and his crew feel that way at the moment. Now, Mike Gundy, I referenced over the last 15 years, Oklahoma State is 46 and 22 in games decided by one score. That's the second best win percentage in the FBS, and they're 4 and 1 in games like that this year. Let's start with the Oklahoma State offense against the Texas defense. Oklahoma State did an amazing job after a pretty rough start. Okay, It was bad early. Oklahoma State had a bye week. They reassessed what they were doing. They decided to go, hey, we're going to get into the pistol in our alignment. We're going to put the running back behind the quarterback. Ollie Gordon's really good running out of that, and we're going to make Ollie Gordon a star. And he has answered the call. And that's the big question of the game. Can Oklahoma State run the football? Ollie Gordon's the leader. In the FBS and rushing yards, he is amazing as it relates to rushing touchdowns. He's second behind Blake Corum, and he has eight 100-yard games on the ground this year. He's legit, okay? He is really, really good. Let's talk about what Ollie Gordon is. He reminds me of Najee Harris. If you haven't watched him this year, he's a big, tall back, but he runs lower than a guy that would indicate he's 6'1", six, 6'2", six, in that vicinity. He runs lower, and he has a great jump cut. I think he has great vision. I think he's a really good pass catcher out of the backfield. He's a lot like Najee Harris, and that's a pretty good place to start because I think Najee was an excellent college back and has now transitioned well into the NFL. He's going against an elite defensive front. Tavondre Sweat, Big 12 Defensive Player of the Year, probably the best run defender in the Big 12, you can make a case that a defense tackle is one of the best run defenders in the entire country. Byron Murphy is probably the most disruptive interior pass rusher. I think Baron Sorrell on the edge is their unsung hero. You have Ethan Burke, who's got good speed off the edge, and Jalen Ford at linebacker, who is a tackling machine. Texas's Texas' defense, if you're going to beat him, you got to beat him through the air. It has not been on the ground so far this year. 74% of the yards they've allowed this year have come to the air. That is 131st as far as the yards on the ground given up, yards of the air given up. So if you're going to beat them, you got to beat them on the perimeter. So that means it's going to fall on Alan Bowman. He unfortunately has six picks in the last three weeks. Two against BYU, one against Houston, three against UCF. He's thrown an interception of five of the last six games. The one that he did not throw an interception, it was against Oklahoma. Ollie Gordon, believe it or not, threw an interception in that game. But the one thing he does really, really well, he doesn't take sacks. He's taken just six sacks this year, and he gets the ball out pretty quickly and can extend plays just enough to make sure the ball's going to be out instead of taking those lost yardage plays. They've stayed on schedule, and he's a veteran player that understands his role within the offense. Brennan Pressley's their go-to guy. He'll be in the slot. Leads the Big Twelve in targets with one hundred and nine. And Leon Johnson, a transfer from Division Three George Fox, he's been outstanding the last few weeks. He was in line to redshirt, but he's at six foot five. He's a problem on the perimeter. Can win some jump balls and can create some issues with you on some of those big routes where it looks like a fade, but he hitches it up there on the underneath. Texas's offense against Oklahoma State's defense. Now you are going to look at Oklahoma State's defensive numbers. And you're going to say, "Ah, you know, I don't know. It's pretty surprising. And I was surprised kind of looking at just their stats, because if you look at how they can create some havoc, I think they're better than the numbers might indicate. Now, they are, statistically speaking, one of the worst defenses to make it to a Big 12 Conference Championship game. There have been 28 participants in the Big 12 title game in the last 20 years. No Big 12 defense playing in a title game has allowed more yards per play They give up 6.3 more rushing yards per game. They give up 172 than the 2023 Oklahoma State Cowboys. So they are 116th in yards per play. They are 105th in rushing yards allowed. The one thing they do extremely well is they force turnovers. They're an opportunistic group, and that's their bread and butter. They have forced 18 turnovers in the last eight games, and the two most important players for them on defense are Colin Oliver and Nicholas Martin. Colin Oliver's number 30. I love this guy. He's awesome. End of the line of scrimmage, outside linebacker, but he can slide down and play D end. He's extremely disruptive on the end. He can take over the game. You got to be very careful for number 30 if you are the Texas Longhorns. And then Nicholas Martin, number four, he's off the ball. He's not very big, but he's really fast. And that defensive line, they play three down defensive line, three safeties, very unique structure. It's called a three, basically a three, three joker, three, three, three safeties. There's three in the middle, pretty much at all three levels, except 30 walks at the end of the line of scrimmage a lot. It's a unique structure that's a little difficult to play against. Now, Texas has seen similar defensive structures in the past against TCU. They ran a little bit of this against Iowa state. They ran a little bit of this. So they have seen it before and they have had success with it before. So it won't completely shock them. But it is a little different. I think Oklahoma State does a pretty good job in creating some chaos. And at times, especially in the second half of football games, they've played very, very well. Now, Quinn Ewers, last year in Stillwater, he had one of the worst performances of his career. He threw three interceptions in the game, completed just 39% of the 49 attempts in the loss. It's one of two games in his career in which he's thrown multiple interceptions. Both have resulted in Texas losses. Two picks against Oklahoma this year, then three last year against the Pokes. Jaden Blue and C.J. Baxter are the one-two punch at running back. Jaden Blue has really come on, and C.J. Baxter has kind of been steady throughout the course of the season. They're filling in for the unfortunate injury that Jonathan Brooks experienced earlier in the year against Kansas State. But those two are pretty dang good one-two punch, and a wide receiver, they are super elite. Xavier Worthy, a little bit banged up, but he should be good to go. Also has a huge effect in the return game. And then A.D. Mitchell, who's the deep threat. He's also the guy that they're going to target in the red zone to complement J.T. Sanders who's the tight end of the real matchup nightmare. I mean, just a matchup nightmare for defenses every single week that he's at 100%. little banged up there as well, but both should be good to go. Both Worthy and Sanders should be just fine. And then finally, not to be overlooked, Jordan Whittington, he's the go-to guy on third down and is a very reliable target there for Quinn Ewers. So much of what Texas does is off of play action. Can the linebackers flow quickly enough? to be able to disrupt the rhythm of Quinn Ewers. He gets the ball out really quick, so they're going to have to be really smart. And I think Texas is going to have to do a really good job using their RPOs, which they run a lot of, and assessing because the structure is going to change at the snap, assessing post-snap movement. That's what Quinn Ewers got to do. Got to be really, really smart in this game because this Oklahoma State defense is really solid when it comes to messing with quarterbacks eyes, like I said, they can turn you over. They're very, very good at that. A couple trends in this game. Oklahoma state has covered four straight games as an underdog and Oklahoma state is 19, five and one against the spread against ranked teams since 2018. I will not give a pick on the game, but I look forward to being on the call. It should be awesome. They're noon Eastern time from at and stadium in Arlington, Texas. And then the third game among power five teams. This is the sec championship. The number one-ranked Georgia Bulldogs are about a six-point favorite against the eighth-ranked Alabama Crimson Tide. This will be Saturday, 4 o'clock Eastern time on CBS. Spot on, the playoff, spot on the playoff on the line, potentially. Only three teams have lost their conference title game and still made the playoff. That's on the Georgia and Kirby Smart have already experienced. Of those three teams, they are 2020 Notre Dame, 2021 Georgia, and 2022 TCU. I don't think there's any wiggle room for Georgia here. They have to win. This is the fourth time that Alabama and Georgia have played in the SEC championship game. Alabama is 3-0 and in the previous meetings. 2021, when Bryce Young had a heroic 420-yard day. 2018, when Jalen Hurts came off the bench to lead the Crimson Tide to 14 fourth-quarter points, including the go-ahead rushing touchdown with 60 seconds left. And then in 2012, that was when it was crazy game. Absolutely crazy game, but Georgia caught the ball at the five-yard line and time expired. Nick Saban's 10-1 in conference title games in his career, including his time at LSU. His only loss was in 2008 against the Florida Gators. He's also 7-0 at Mercedes-Benz Stadium, including three wins against the Georgia Bulldogs. Kirby Smart has built an incredible program. An incredible program. And to see the consistency that this group has played with throughout his time is remarkable. Now, they're different this year. They're a little different this year, and I'll explain why here in just a moment. Alabama's offense start there. Jalen Milroe has taken his game to the next level in the last month. Since November 1st, he's been a different guy. He posted a 93 QBR, accounted for 15 touchdowns, had only four sacks in the four games he played in November. In the first seven games, 77 QBR and responsible for 18 touchdowns while being sacked 30 times. So sack numbers in the last four games down 26 from the first seven touchdowns, down only three. (laughs) So he is playing at a crazy high level. And a couple things that I've noticed from him. He holds the ball pretty long time, longest in the power five on average, 3.24 seconds before he throws it. Okay. That's the second longest in the FBS. Jace Bauer at Central Michigan holds it the longest, but he holds it the longest and the ball's in the air for a long time too, because they want to take shots downfield. Now, 15% of his passes are considered off-target. That's 106 in the FBS, but he is absolutely at his best when driving the ball down the field. He's seventh in QBR on deep routes, so he has done a great job and has started to really factor in in the run game as well. Ran for 107 last week. That was his second 100-yard game of the season, his fifth 100-yard game by an Alabama player this year, and only one player has rushed for 100 yards against Georgia in the past three seasons. That was Cody Schrader. Earlier this year, he, of course, is the outstanding potential Doak Walker award winner from Missouri. And the last quarterback with 100 rushing guards against Georgia was Tennessee's Josh Dobbs way back in 2015. Now, a couple things to take into account here with Georgia's defense. They're still very good in many, many areas. They're excellent in the secondary. I think they have elite, elite players in the secondary. Tyke Smith at nickel star, elite. Kamari Lassiter, elite on the edge, on the perimeter amazing, amazing cover corner. Probably the one of the best that Georgia's had. We're just saying something because there's been a lot of good ones in the last handful of years. And then Javon Bullard at safety, three super elite players. I think Malachi Starks is really, really good. And I think at the other corner, Dalen Everett, he's the guy that at times has been picked on here when trying to attack this Georgia defense through the year. They are really, really good in the back end. But against the run, They have not been as good as they've been in the past, and I'll explain why here in just a minute. Georgia's offense, Carson Beck, he's coming off his worst statistical performance of the year against Georgia Tech, threw for just 175. It's the only time this year he's been held under 250. But his 11 games with 250-plus yards are the most in the FBS. He gets the ball out really quick, uh, 2.35 seconds, shortest in the FBS before he delivers the football, and the ball is in the air for less than a second. That's the 12th fastest in the FBS pretty amazing. The guy drives the ball and he gets rid of it very quickly. He's got a big arm and he's not afraid to show it off. Now, really, really accurate as well. Just 6% of his passes are considered off target. That's the second best in the FBS. The guy is awesome. He is a great, great, great football player. He's been a joy to watch this year and to fill the shoes of Stetson Bennett as well as he has. I can't say it's a huge surprise. He has been everything I expected him to be and some. Very impressed by his performance. Now the weapons, that's a question mark coming into this game. Brock Bowers has been in and out of the lineup at times this year with the ankle injury. Missed last week's game, but I would imagine he'll be back for this one. Lad mcconkey he's been out with a back injury and has been out with an ankle injury, but hopefully he's at 100% for this one. Ra rah Thomas, another one of those receivers that was coming on late in the year. He sprained his foot a couple weeks ago. It's up in the air as to whether or not he'll be able to play. And then Tate Ratledge, their right guard. He warmed up in the game last week, but couldn't go. If he's back, that'll be a huge coup for the offensive line. That certainly, he's probably been maybe their most consistent offensive lineman this year. Knowing that Mims, their right tackle, has been out for an extended period of time. The most consistent lineman has probably been Tate Ratledge. So it's going to be important for Georgia to make sure that they try to get all those guys back. And if they can't get all those guys back, then Carson Beck and others will have to step up, and they have all year long. Rosamie Jack has been excellent at times at wide receiver. Dylan Bell is probably as versatile a player as you'll find in the sport. He's amazing as well. Alabama's defense has two bookends that are awesome. Dallas Turner, Chris Braswell, both had a sack in the Iron Bowl, tied for third in the SEC with eight sacks this year. This game's going to come down to a few things. I'm going to give you some numbers, so stay with me, okay? This is the SEC championship game. So we know what is going to decide it. It's going to be run game, big plays, third downs, and turnovers. Those four things are going to decide the game. Simple as that. Let's start with the run game. Okay, Alabama's rushing offense averages about 178 a game. That's 45th and about four and a half per carry. That's 53rd. But outside the tackles, they're actually really good. Six and a half per carry, that's 12th. And they have a lot of explosive runs too. They have 81 runs that have gone for 10 plus yards. That's eighth. Georgia's rushing defense. Okay, really good. Really good on defense against the run with the exception of a few games here and there. Last week was one, Auburn was one, Missouri was one. Will they play their best in the biggest game of the year? They're 28th in rush defense and they allow under four yards per carry. Still pretty good, but that's 57th in college football this year at 3.98 yards per carry. But here's the problem for Georgia. Outside the tackles, they're giving up 5.6 yards per carry. That is 92nd in college football. I just told you Alabama averages 6.5 per carry. That's 12th. Georgia allows 5.6. That's 92nd. On zone reads... Not a huge part of what Alabama does, but for this game, based on how Georgia struggled with it, I would think Alabama will carry a heavy dose of these. On zone reads, Georgia is allowing six yards per carry. That's 112th in college football. So you heard that right. On zone reads, six yards per carry, 112th. Outside the tackles, 5.6 per carry, 92, 92nd. Georgia on the edges of their defense have not been as good against the run as they've been in the past. I don't know why, because I think the personnel is still really good, but that is an area of concern if I'm Kirby Smart and Glenn Schumann, the defensive coordinator. As far as Georgia's run game, Georgia's 31st in the country running the football about 186 yards per game. They've been much better, though, the last three weeks. Part of that has to do with the offensive line getting better because of Marius Mims, their first rounder at right tackle, is back healthy. And Kendall Milton, their big body back, he's been back in the lineup as well. So they've been much better the last three weeks. But that has not been something they've relied heavily on this year. Alabama's rush defense is 36th in the college football. They got gashed last week against Auburn. So I would imagine Georgia will implement some of those runs that Auburn had success with because there were some holes on that side of the ball, particularly on counter They're right outside the tackles. All right. So Alabama's rush defense is still good, not as elite as they once were. So whoever wins the rushing game and the rush defense, I think has a really good chance to win this game. I'd give a slight edge to Alabama at the moment. Big plays. That's considered 10-yard runs, 20-yard passes. Alabama's offense has created 132 of those this year. That's fifth. Georgia's defense has given up 75. That's tied for 20th. Pretty good. So both sides, Alabama creating, Georgia defending, both are in the top 20. What gives? We'll find out. Georgia's offense, conversely, they have 128. That's tied for 10th. Alabama, however, has given up 83. That's tied for 33rd. So the one glaring issue there, Bama's given up eight more big plays than Georgia this year. That drops them from uh, Georgia's T20, Bama's T33. Whoever defends the big play, I think has a real good chance to be successful in the game. I give a slight edge to Georgia in that area. On third downs, Georgia is number two in both third down offense and third down defense. 56% conversion offensively, 27% defensively. Really, really good. Alabama, third down defense, not quite as good. 34% given up. That's T27. But their offense has been excellent, especially the last four weeks. They're up around 49%, which is 12th in the country. Either way, though, Georgia has the edge when it comes to third downs. Turnovers. Georgia's only forced 13 this year. That's 104th in the FBS. Alabama has only turned it over 10 times. That's 10th in the FBS. That's advantage Alabama. And a trend in this game, Alabama is a six point underdog against Georgia and Alabama as an underdog under Nick Saban is six and five outright six, four and one against the spread. And this is the fourth time alabama has been an underdog since 2010. All four of those games have been against the Georgia Bulldogs. Georgia is 12 and four against the spread against ranked teams. since 21 and Alabama is two, seven and one against the spread in the last 10 games in November or later. I'm taking the Crimson Tide. Uh, I think they're going to be able to run the football. I think they're going to be able to get on the edge, get on the perimeter. I think they'll be smart with how they try to implement some of their run game. And I think their secondary has been better and better and better. If you look at the Texas game, that was the low point. But the secondary from that point forward has played much better down the stretch. So I think the secondary will match up pretty well with the Georgia Bulldogs. I'm taking the tide. I think it'll be a close game, a really close game, an all-time thriller, but I think Alabama will be able to control the line of scrimmage better than the Georgia Bulldogs. Must be 21-plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. See app for details. Mmm, you smell that? That's the scent of fresh turf and freshly cracked Dr. Pepper, which can only mean one thing. It's college football season, so block off your Saturdays and swipe a sweet Dr. Pepper from the mini-fridge because there's a new season of high kicks, long throws, and Fansville commercial breaks to carry you all the way to the West Coast games. That's right, the fans are back, and this year things are heating up. We're talking about hot takes, more heartbreak, more layers of face paint. Get ready to drink in all the drama this season with the help of the most delicious college football tradition there is, Dr. Pepper, the one fans deserve. The Michigan Wolverines will take on the Iowa Hawkeyes to be Saturday, 8 o'clock Eastern time on Fox. Jim Harbaugh is back on the sideline for Michigan after serving a three-game suspension. They are seeking their third straight Big Ten title, something that hasn't been done since 1990 through 1992. Iowa, they have 10 wins this season, which everyone seems to and poke fun at Iowa. They just find a way okay? It's not always pretty. The numbers would never suggest how they win games. Most of the things you look at is like, oh, well, I can see they got outgained for sure, but look at what they did here. I'll explain here in just a second. But the way they've pulled upsets traditionally and the way teams traditionally pull upsets, Iowa hasn't done. It's crazy. They are amazing. Amazing. When they play great defense and they play the field position game, But it's pretty wild, man, and I'll explain here in just a moment. In 10 wins this season, 8, they have scored less than 25 points. The Hawkeyes are the first Big Ten team since Chicago. That's right, Chicago. In 1902, to win 8 games in a season when scoring under 25 points. Chicago, by the way, won 9 games like that. Additionally, the Hawkeyes are the first team since San Diego State in 1976 to win 10 regular season games and average fewer than 20 points per game. It's amazing. People want to make fun of it. I'm tipping the cap, man. I think it's amazing what they've been able to do. Let's start with Michigan. We know what they are, okay? We know that JJ McCarthy is crazy efficient. I think he's playing good football. People have kind of pushed back on that and they've cited the Bowling Green game, cited the Maryland game. All is fair. Totally understand that. All is fair. But J.J. McCarthy is a really efficient player and has done a great job this year for the most part, even though he's better with Jim Harbaugh on the sideline and controlling the offense, kind of taking it to the next level. Blake Corum is going to have a big, heavy load in this game. I think this is by far the best offense that Iowa has played this year. No disrespect to Penn State, but I think this is the best offense they've played this year. And Blake Corum, Donovan Edwards, all the different guys they have there on offense I think make it a very difficult match. I think Colston Loveland's got a chance to have a big game. I think Roman Wilson's got a chance to have a big game. I think Cornelius Johnson's got a chance to have a big game. Because I look at Iowa, and I just don't think they have the personnel to be able to keep this offense in check. They're going to hang in there. They're going to battle. I have so much respect for Jay Higgins and Nick Jackson. They're so sh- so sure at the second level defensively. They're really, really good on the second level. I just don't see how Iowa is going to be able to make the same specifics. I don't think is going to be able to create any separation against Mike Sandra still, against Will Johnson. I think it's going to be very difficult for Iowa to create any consistency offensively. They have 51 three and outs this year. 51. That is the most in the FBS, and yet here they are playing on Championship Saturday. It's an amazing, amazing accomplishment. They are 124th in offensive efficiency. They are 5th in defensive efficiency. They average 247 yards per game. That's 133rd out of 133. And they allow 280 yards per game. That is fourth. So they're going to win with defense. They're not good in the red zone either when they get down there offensively. Just 41% of the time they score touchdowns. That is 132nd. Deacon Hills, their quarterback, sub 50% completion. Five to six touchdown interception ratio has taken 17 sacks. Uh, LaShawn Williams, coming off a great game against Nebraska made a bunch of guys miss he's going to have to play the best game of his life and then i think i think nico Ragaini uh, is really important he's got 66 targets it's the most in the team but they don't convert on all those targets just 26 receptions and 227 yards he's not the leading receiver that's eric all but eric all lost for the season a few weeks ago so it's going to be really important for Ragaini to play at a high level and create separation against probably the best corner that he'll face all season long in Will Johnson. I've mentioned Jay Higgins and Nick Jackson already. They're the leaders on the defense side. They're going to have to play at a crazy high level. Usually when you look at this, look, Michigan's a three-touchdown and three touchdown favorite or so, three, three-and-a-half touchdown favorite, 23, 24-and-a-half, whatever, in that vicinity. I, I look at and I try to think, all right, how can Iowa pull the upset? Okay, what do they have to do to pull the upset? Well, you you would normally in a game like this, you'd say, well, they got to win the turnover battle. That goes without saying, right? They have to win the turnover battle. The margin and the talent gap is so significant that they have to win the turnover battle. They don't have the style of play that's going to expose Michigan. So they have to win turnovers. Well, here's the problem. Michigan is plus 14 turnover margin. That's the second best in college football. They've had just seven turnovers this year. That's tied for fourth fewest in the sport. They forced 21. That's 18th in the sport. And then Iowa, conversely, in an amazing, amazing, amazing stat, to win 10 games, to have as anemic an offense as you have, they are minus one in the turnover margin. 16 turnovers, that's the 53rd most. And they have forced 15, which is 86th. Usually when you look at a team that underachieves offensively, usually their defense is you know, 25 turnovers or so if they're playing on this Saturday. Well, they're 86th as far as turnovers created because teams aren't taking chances against them. Why would you? If you punt, fine. D up, we'll be all right. So they're not good when it comes to forcing turnovers. They're not good as far as protecting the football. Iowa minus one, T77 in turnover margin. You would think Iowa would have to be great on special teams, right? They have to be elite on special teams. Well, Cooper DeGene being out has hurt their return game quite a bit. They've also had six kicks blocked this year. That's the most in the sport, including two field goals last week against Nebraska. So they, they haven't even gotten it done on special teams. It's wild when you really think about it. They also give a bunch of kick return yardage. It's just, it's mind blowing. It really is. So the trends here: the lowest over/under ever in a conference championship game since 2000—that is, since we started keeping track of these stats here at ESPN—is 39. That's the 2008 ACC title game between BC and Virginia Tech. Virginia Tech won the game 30 to 12, so it went over. Uh, this game right now, 35 and a half. Iowa games have gone 10 and two on the under this year, and Michigan is four, one and one against the spread with Jim Harbaugh on the sideline. I think Michigan is going to absolutely roll Iowa. Now, I think it's a finish the job. Everyone's mad. Jim Harbaugh's back. This is by far the best offense that Iowa's seen this year. I think they'll create a couple short fields, Michigan will, and I just don't think there's a whole lot that Iowa's going to be able to do. I would love it if they battled, but I just don't see the path to a competitive game at all there in the Big Twelve, uh, Big 10 title game. Let's go next to Louisville and Florida State. This is the ACC championship. This will be Saturday, eight o'clock Eastern Time on ABC, and I love the matchup for a few reasons. One, I think it pits two exceptionally good offensive minds. I mean, we're talking about super elite play callers in Mike Norvell and Jeff Brom, two head coaches that continue to call the plays, and they know how to create problems for the opposing defense, and they have tendencies, and they will stick to those tendencies. And then they'll break them and they'll marry up their run game to their pass game. I thought with Norvell in particular, he has a run play that looks a certain way. Okay, so just visualize a run play. And then he has a play action pass that looks the exact same way the run looks. Then he has a screen that looks exactly the same way as the run and the play action look. I mean, he has variations to every single look. So he marries it all up and does an amazing job. And I think Jeff Braum... Very few coaches in college football do as good a job as Jeff Brom in understanding his own personnel, okay? We struggle here at this position, so we are not going to let that position beat us. We're going to do this. So, for instance, dating back to his time at Purdue, they struggled along the offensive line. They ran about 12 screens a game. This year, he's got elite running backs, two of them, we're going to pound it with those guys. And how are they most comfortable? They're really comfortable operating out of the pistol. They're really good running out of the shotgun. They're really, really solid. So I think both coaches do an amazing job with their personnel and put a lot of strain on the defense and marrying up run pass, using motion to their advantage, and creating a lot of issues. Let's start with Florida State's offense. Now, now they, they won the game against Florida, but they clearly did not look offensively the same way they did in the first 10 and a half games of the year with Jordan Travis under center. Okay, they didn't. Now, Tate Roddamaker ironically, Tate Roddamaker came off the bench against Louisville last year and led Florida State to a comeback victory on a Thursday in Louisville. Now, last week, it wasn't necessarily the most efficient day, hardly. But the main thing for Roddamaker was zero. That's zero interceptions. There were plenty of situations where he could have forced throws, but he didn't. He was smart, and he managed the game really well, especially on the last drive of the first half and the first drive of the second half. Those were really, really important. Now, in those series, Rodemaker converted on a third and nine and a third and 10. He also hit Jaheim Bell for the 29-yard gain, and it's, it's not a coincidence that Tate Rodemaker came right back in after he got hit. They made a good pre-snap adjustment That led to Trey Benson going 26 yards for basically the game-sealing score. Now, the wide receivers are amazing. We know that Keon Coleman's amazing. Johnny Wilson is also a handful on the perimeter. But let's not lose sight of how important Jaheim Bell might be in this game as well, as far as Louisville's offense is concerned. Now, Jack Plummer, the main issue for him, interceptions. That's the key. When he's smart with the football, they win. When he's not smart with the football, they get in trouble. So he has got to be really, really smart against an excellent pass rush. Jared Verse coming off a a two-and-a-half sack performance, not to be outshined by uh, Patrick Payton on the other side. Two elite edge defenders and probably the best secondary that Louisville's seen this year. So I don't think you're going to want the ball in Jack Plummer's hands in this game. FSU in the back end is excellent, and they can rush the quarterback. They have to stay in manageable down and distance. They have to stay on schedule. That starts by running the football. Jawar Jordan reminds me a lot of Devon A. Chain at Texas A&M when he's healthy. The problem he's been a little bit banged up from time to time has had a knee, has had a hamstring. Is he at 100% for this game? Because if he is, he's a game breaker. The other guy's is Isaac Garendo. In Jawar Jordan's absence, he's really stepped up, has shown some big play potential the last few weeks that we didn't know he had, but he's an excellent one two punch. To the lightning that is Jawar Jordan, he is the Thunder, but he's also shown some lightning. The last couple weeks as well. The offensive line, I think, is rock solid, and their best receiver is Jamari Thrash. problem is Jamari Thrash has had some drops recently. He's had an injured hand, so hopefully he can be a little bit more sure-handed as he gets further removed from that injury taking place. I believe that was way back. I believe it was against Duke when the injury went down, so he hasn't been quite the same the last few weeks, but he's still a very effective player. It can scare the defense if he can create some space in the open field. A big thing in this game is they have to start fast. This is Louisville that is. Now, Seminoles they've fallen behind in 3 of their last 4 games. They were down 7 nothing to pit. They were down 13 nothing at home against North Alabama. They were down 12 nothing against Florida. Some of the slow starts as Mike Norvell kind of point to, he said well, you know, you got rivalry game, you got senior day, you got some emotional moments that have gone on. So there have been some guys maybe making some mistakes, maybe pressing a little bit. I mean, look at Trey Benson, maybe their best player. They run into an 11-yard loss on the first carry last week against Florida. Uh, Worse, Florida State has faced first-half deficits in five of their last six games away from Tallahassee. The only time they didn't was when they routed Wake Forest uh, a few weeks ago. It feels like months ago now at this point. The run game is imperative in this game, and I think Louisville has to be exceptional running the football, a prolific one-two punch like I've already talked about. They are second and fourth. Jawar Jordan and Isaac Rendo are second and fourth in the ACC, respectively, in yards per carry. Jawar Jordan, 6.4. Isaac Rendo 6.1. And both can break it, that's for sure. They have some big carries, too. 11 carries of 30-plus yards that tied for 10th in the country with Florida State alongside a few others. Now, I think it's really important for Florida State to create run lanes as well. They are pretty good when it comes to running the football. But I do think that Trey Benson and company, Lawrence, Toafili, they have really good backs and they have to be real smart in the scheme. This is not an overpowering offensive line. They're a line that creates leverage with pulls, gaps with pullers, counters, things like that. That's what they do. They do it with deception more so than they do with blunt force trauma. I think that's going to be tough against a very athletic and aggressive front, for the Louisville Cardinals. Ashton Gelati is an All-American candidate. Ramon Perrier, I think, is really underappreciated. Cam Wilson's a handful off the edge with great speed. And Mason Riger gives great, great... Uh, I think he, have, he gives great effort on the on the edges of the defense as well. So I think they're very good up front, but Ashton Gelati is the bell cow. They need to account for him in the run game because Louisville is very, very good against the run. Turnovers will be massive in this game. I already referenced the fact that Jack Plummer has at times turn the ball over way, way too much, way too much. And the Seminoles, uh, they don't have a lot of fumbles. Florida State doesn't have a lot of turnovers in general. Just five total turnovers this year, that's the fewest in the country. So that's going to be really important for Louisville to create a turnover or two and be really smart for their quarterback, Jack Plummer, to not make mistakes. A couple matchups I'm really excited about, the Florida State weapons against the Louisville DBs. Now, Keon Coleman, 11 touchdowns this year. He's an incredible. Johnny Wilson and then more specifically Jaheem Bell. Jaheem Bell working against Louisville safeties who are a bit suspect in coverage could mean that Jaheim Bell has a really big impact in the game because I look at Quincy Riley, I think Quincy Riley the corner for Louisville is among the best and he'll draw Keon Coleman in this game more than likely. That's a matchup that has to be won by Louisville. Now, Jarvis Brownlee's been in and out of the lineup. He's been a little banged up and filling in for him at times has been stormed Duck. So he'll have his hands full more than likely with Johnny Wilson in the event in which Brownlee can't go. But hopefully he's missed the last few games. Maybe he'll be ready to go here after a few weeks off after having an injured foot. A couple trends in the game. Louisville is 6-0 against the spread following a loss since 2022. And Florida State is 5-0 against the spread in the last five. When the line is between minus three and plus three. So in close games, Florida State has found a way to get it done. So much has been made about Tate Rodemaker. So much has been made about Jordan Travis. People are not acknowledging how good Florida State is at all the other spots. They're not acknowledging it. I don't know why people are refusing to acknowledge how good Keon Coleman is, how good Jaheem Bell is how good Mike Norvell is as a coach, how much of a matchup nightmare Johnny Wilson is, how good Jared Versus, how good Kalen DeLoach is, how good Tatum Bethune is. They are elite in the secondary. People are acknowledging very much that yes, okay, maybe Florida State is a little bit flawed at the moment at quarterback. I think people acknowledge that maybe Florida State along the offensive line is not a ground and pound bunch It's going to hold up real well against Michigan if they have to block them head up throughout the course of a 60-minute game. I acknowledge that. But I also acknowledge that Mike Norvell knows where his weaknesses lie, and he will find a way. I think Florida State gets this one in the ACC title game, and, and I think it's going to be a, a competitive game, a really competitive game, but I trust Tate Rodemaker at the moment more than I trust Jack Plummer to not make mistakes, and this game might be a game that is decided by who makes the biggest mistake. Helmet, the world's first football helmet designed to level the playing field for deaf and hard of hearing players. Radio communication continues to be the primary way professional football coaches and players communicate during the game. But if the highest level of football requires athletes to hear, it presents a significant gap for athletes that cannot this discovery created an opportunity to apply the power of AT&T's 5G technology to make sports more inclusive. AT&T is a staple of college sports, always exploring ways to use the expertise in connectivity to advance the way coaches, athletes, and fans experience the game. Our collaboration led to the first ever 5G connected helmet. It sends the coach's play call from the device on the sidelines directly to a visual display lens on the helmet, meaning it does not rely on sound or hearing to communicate. So for the first time ever, these players can always get the same information from their coach as their hearing counterparts. The AT&T 5G Helmet. AT&T, connecting changes everything. Learn more at at and slash 5G Helmet. Helmet is not for sale. AT&T is a proud supporter. Of the Gallaudet Bison. Now moving along to the G5 championships. There's a lot of great matchups in these G5 championships. Remember, the highest ranked conference champion from the G5 conferences, the American Conference USA MAC, Mountain West Sunbelt, in alphabetical order, by the way, not in order of preference, is guaranteed a spot in the New Year's Six Bowl game. Uh, should it not be selected into the semifinals, obviously. Okay, so Tulane earned that distinction last year when they made the Cotton Bowl, beat SC. Tulane can become the third Group of Five program in the playoff era to make multiple New Year's Six Bowl games. They would join Cincinnati and UCF, who are no longer in the G5. Let's start there with the American. The Tulane Green Wave will take on the SMU Mustangs to be Saturday, 4 o'clock Eastern time on ABC. SMU 10-2, 8-0 undefeated in the league. Two lane 11-1, that one loss coming to the Ole Miss Rebels. They are 8-0 in the AAC as well. Now the Green Wave quarterback, Michael Pratt, has won 14 consecutive starts. He did not play against Ole Miss this year. and That was a streak that began with a win on November 17th of last year against SMU. The only starting quarterback with a longer active win streak is Michael Penix, who's won 19 in a row. And Florida State's Jordan Travis, who has won 17 in a row. Now he's thrown a touchdown pass in 26 consecutive games. It's the longest active streak in the FBS. It's pretty amazing. Second longest active streak in the FBS. Memphis's Seth Hennigan has thrown a touchdown in 36 consecutive games. And SMU is playing in their first conference championship since 2010 when they lost to UCF in the Conference USA title. They have not won a conference title since 1984 when they shared the Southwest Conference crown with the Houston Cougars. Trends in the game. SMU has failed to cover five straight games as a road underdog since 2022. And 10 of Tulane's last 12 games have gone under the total. Tulane is 18-8 and against the spread as a home favorite since 2019. I'm taking SMU in the game. I think SMU's defense doesn't get enough credit. Everyone wants to talk about Preston Stone and Rhett Lashley. SMU's defense has taken a significant step this year. I think they somehow find a way to pull off the upset there against the Green Wave. Let's go to the Sunbelt Championship game. This will be Appalachian State against Troy. This will be Saturday, 4 o'clock Eastern time on ESPN. Troy is seeking their second straight Sunbelt Championship game. While Appalachian State is looking to win the Sunbelt for the first time since 2019 when it capped a run of four straight seasons, winning at least a share of the conference. Now, Troy's Javon Solomon, who has eight sacks in the last three games and 14 sacks on the season, has tied with UTSA's Trey Moore for the second most in the country. And James Madison's Jalen Green leads the country with 15 and a half. So keep an eye on Javon Solomon, eight sacks in the last three games. He's breathing fire and including the Solomons eight, Troy has 20 sacks Over the last three games, it's five more sacks than the next closest FBS team. That would be Boise State in that span since November 11th. And after starting the season three and four, Appalachian State has won five in a row. The Mountaineers are all-time eight and three against Troy since joining the Sun Belt in 2014. And they are seven and one against the Trojans, including five straight wins. I'm taking... The Troy Trojans, even though they have failed to cover four straight games against teams with winning records in 23 and Appalachian State is 10 2 and one against the spread as an underdog since 2018. I'm taking Troy. I think They handle their business and App State has gotten hot of late for sure. But Troy's defense is relentless and I think they'll make life very difficult for the App State Mountaineers. Let's go next to the Conference USA Championship. New Mexico State fresh off a bye week and the week before that beating the Auburn Tigers against the Liberty Flames. Liberty still with an outside chance to get to the New Year Six, but they need to win in this one, obviously, to be eligible for the New Year Six. Now the Aggies, they turned the ball over four times in their win against Jacksonville State. They had just three turnovers on offense combined in their previous nine games. Now their quarterbacks, legit Diego Pavia, is one of just two FBS players this season to have at least twenty five hundred passing yards and eight hundred rushing yards. That is alongside Jaden Daniels. Pretty good company there for the New Mexico State quarterback. And Liberty's quarterback, Caden Salter, is currently one of three FBS players over the past 25 years to have at least 10 rushing touchdowns, 25 passing touchdowns, and to be sacked 10 or fewer times in a single season. The others were Oregon's Bo Nix and Georgia's Stetson Bennett last year. The trends in the game, New Mexico State has covered six straight as an underdog. Liberty is 3-10 Three and 10 against the spread as a double digit favorite since 2022. I'm taking liberty in the game, but I expect New Mexico State to keep it really close. I'd take the points in that one. Let's go to the MAC Miami, Ohio against Toledo. This will be Saturday, noon Eastern time on ESPN. I miss the MAC being on Friday, I might add. I used to always love watching the MAC championship on Friday night. Now the Pac 12 has taken that spot, so they've moved to the noon window, but I've always loved watching the MAC championship. It was always so entertaining there on a Friday night, kind of set the table for what should be an excellent week. Now, Toledo is not the Toledo that you once knew. It's a group that runs the football like crazy. They run for 211 rushing yards a game. That's the eighth most in the country. They averages 5.3 a carry. That's the 10th most in the FBS, but Miami, Ohio on defense, they have been excellent. They have been really good on that side of the ball. They have held their opponents under 25 points in 10 straight games. It's the fifth longest active streak in the FBS. This is the longest such streak by a MAC team since Ball State did it over the course of a 12-game stretch in 2008. A couple trends in the game. Miami, Ohio is 9-2 and against the spread in their last 11, and Toledo has failed to cover three straight games against teams with winning records. I'm taking Toledo, but I would take the points. I think Toledo will keep it close, but I think Miami will kind of shrink the game. I think it'll be a closer game, probably a lower-scoring game, but Toledo ultimately gets the win and wins the MAC title to cap off a 12-1 and season. What a job. They've done there at Toledo. Jason Candle and company deserve a ton of credit. And then finally, last but not least, the Mountain West Championship features the Boise State Broncos against the UNLV Rebels. Now, UNLV is the only team in the FBS this year to lead its conference in third down conversion percentage on both offense and defense. The only other team to ever lead the Mountain West in both categories was TCU back in 2010. That was an Andy Dalton led TCU team. So it's been a while since we've seen that type of dominance at this level on both sides in third down. UNLV's Jaden Mayava has seven passing touchdowns, two rushing touchdowns, and is averaging 10.5 yards per attempt during the month of November. Only four other quarterbacks have matched those totals over the same time frame. LSU's Jaden Daniels, Alabama's Jalen Milroe and Oregon's Bo Nix, and SMU's Preston Stone. So he's playing at a really high level, so keep an eye on Jaden Mayava. Uh, But since the beginning of last season, Boise State is 14-0 when holding its opponent's completion percentage to less than 55%. That is the most wins without a loss in such games among all FBS teams over the last two years. And Boise State's Ashton Gentry is the first FBS player since Oklahoma's Joe Mixon in 2016 to have at least 1,000 rushing yards and 500 receiving yards, 10 rushing touchdowns, and five receiving touchdowns in the same season. So it's all about Ashton Gentry, the outstanding running back for the Broncos. A couple trends in the game. UNLV is 10 and two against the spread this season. That's tied for the best against the spread record in the FBS. And UNLV is six, one and one against the spread. When the line is between minus three and plus three in 2021, I'm taking UNLV. I think they get it done at home against a really good Boise state team that has surged. But I think UNLV team has been more consistent throughout the course of the year. I think they get it done and bring home the championship. As we bid farewell to the four team playoff, I want to just acknowledge for a moment how awesome the 12 team playoff is going to be because our focus at the moment is on the teams that will make the college football playoff and conference championship Saturday next year will have different implications, meaning you win on conference championship weekend, you get to automatically advance to the second round of the playoffs. And we don't know if that's a benefit. We don't know if that's a negative. I think it's kind of nice to know that you will have a home game potentially. So if you lose your conference title game, you're probably going to be in a home field setting. Maybe you go on the road too. I don't know. But this will be the last conference championship weekend that will ever feel like this. Where it's do or die, win or go home, you're done if you lose type of approach. Because tell me this. Is there a team right now that you know for certain that can lose and get in? Maybe Michigan. Maybe Washington. Unlikely, but maybe. There have been three teams we talked about earlier with Georgia. Uh, There have been three teams that have lost in their conference championship game and still found their way in. I think Georgia has a chance. But when you really look at it, they would need Michigan to lose. They would need Florida State to lose. They would need Oklahoma, uh, they would need Oklahoma State to beat Texas. So Bama would be in. You, know, they, you, know, you start doing the numbers like anything's possible in the event in which there's crazy chaos. Anything's possible. But let's just take a moment this weekend to just absorb and appreciate the last conference championship game, games, if you will, that will feel like this. Of course, for the G5 that we talked about a little while ago, the outcomes of conference championship weekend will mean a spot in the college football playoff, which is all anyone's ever wanted, at least for the next two years. But there is not going to be a do or die feeling when we lace them up for conference title weekend next year, which is a bummer. It really is a bummer. As a guy that in 2009 played in a de facto playoff game against Florida, winner went to the championship, loser went home. I've always viewed conference championship games as the end-all be-all. The most important thing you could ever achieve as a player until you get past that test, you cannot talk about the next test that might lie down the road. But the 12-team playoff will be awesome. I am excited about it. I was not for a very long time. I resisted it. I was an anti-expansionist. And still, part of me is disappointed that we're going to a 12-team playoff. I'll admit, part of me is disappointed. Because I like the vitriol that we've had amongst fan bases for the last four weeks talking about, well, why are we ranked here? We should be ranked here. This team's not good. This team is good. We're better than that team. Would we be ranked against this team? Would we, would we be favored against this team? I, I like that. I think the subjectivity has made college football unique for a very long time. And the conversation has made college football unique. Like Every other sport has a very clearly defined playoff structure. We haven't had that in college football, and that makes us different. But I also think at the same time, it's turned people off. So I am willing to embrace the 12-team playoff because it's coming. There's nothing we can do about it. For those that were anti-expansion, we lost. We lost. So (laughs) let's move on and embrace the 12-team playoff when it gets here a year from now. It'll be awesome because it could potentially include teams that are not playing this weekend. It still could get in, but I do think there needs to be a caveat and I'll say this and we'll talk about it throughout the offseason. If you make it to your conference championship game, you cannot be penalized by being forced to go on the road to play against a team that got conference championship Saturday off. Now there might be some instances, right? Because the top six teams will be the top six teams and the co- top six conference champions get automatic qualifiers. And I know that I haven't quite... You know, so Team 7 and Team 8, they better be competing on Conference Championship Saturday because if it were going like it was today, Ohio State would get a home playoff game. Should they? Is my question. They're not playing this weekend. So you get the rest up, get an extra week off, and they still get to host a home playoff game? But then again, remember the next year, there's no divisions in the Big Ten. So Ohio State will most likely be playing for a Conference Championship game. Most likely they would be because they at 11 to one would have the second best record and the big 10. So it'll all sort itself out. It'll all be fine. I'm not concerned about it, but just telling you as a true traditionalist in the sport, please enjoy this last conference championship Friday and Saturday while we have it. Cause it's going to be very different next year. That'll do it for us here at Always College Football. Please continue to like, rate, and subscribe. We appreciate you so much. We look forward to interacting with you guys on our social media at Always CFB. You can follow me on Twitter at Greg McElroy. I will be doing a show on Saturday night and on Sunday morning, potentially. I don't know when exactly it'll be posted, but we will recap the games. We'll give you a little preview of what might go down based on the results on selection day. And I'll also be on the show there noon Eastern time on ESPN as the College Football Playoff Committee unveils the top 25. For all of us here at Always College Football, for Mark, Jake, Jack, the other Jack, I'm Greg. We hope you have a wonderful day. And remember, it's always college football. Hey guys, it's Greg McElroy. Thanks for watching Always College Football. Make sure you like, rate, and subscribe to ESPN's YouTube channel and wherever you listen to your podcast.